welcome to this episode of Military History Inside Out. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Elizabeth Morrison, who has edited a book on a prominent medieval manuscript about a famous knight who was known for his prowess uh, in hand-to-hand combat and uh, combat in general. Thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Morrison, editor of A Knight for the Ages, Jacques de Lalange and the Art of Chivalry. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. So first, um, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? And go back to your, uh, you know, when you first started with your PhD. Ah, or earlier, well, in... If- yeah, it, it actually started quite early for me, so I was one of those fortunate people who really found my calling early in life. I actually was in high school, I was 15, and I was taking an art history class, and as with all art history classes, we started with cave paintings, and we got to the Middle Ages, and I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. So in high school, and then in college, and I went straight to grad school after um, college, I studied medieval art all the way through, and then I was fortunate enough to get a job at the Getty in the Department of Manuscripts when I was 26, and I just rose through the curatorial ranks and became head of the department in 2010, so it's been a fabulous journey. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you you received your PhD at what point there? I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, I, I, so I started working for the Getty when I was still working on my PhD, mm-hmm. and uh, I was at um, Cornell University and received the PhD in 2003 when I was working at the Getty. Hmm. Okay. And what was your, um, I guess, the subject of your your study there? Um, well, I uh, did my major was in medieval manuscripts, and then I did a minor in medieval paleography, which is the study of handwriting. And I have another minor in 19th century art, mostly the medieval influences on 19th century art. And my dissertation was on the subject of the Trojan War and how it was interpreted in 13th and 14th century France, particularly in illuminated manuscripts. Interesting. Um, Okay, so uh, let's talk about this book then. What, uh, what, What's the main theme of the book? So this is um, uh, this book is a monograph on a particular manuscript that we added to the collection about two years ago, and it was really a magnificent acquisition. It was a manuscript that was um, almost completely unknown. It hadn't been published since 1914, and um, it um, was offered by a private family. And it's a manuscript that has um, an enormous frontispiece by one of the greatest artists of the late Middle Ages, whose name is Simon Benning. And then it has an additional 17 miniatures uh, by a secondary artist whom I had actually studied in the past. So when we acquired the manuscript, I thought it would be a great opportunity to kind of look at it in a kaleidoscopic view, to look at it from a number of different perspectives. So um, I um, asked uh, seven other scholars to contribute essays, and then I contributed an essay as well, all looking at this same manuscript. So it's a a historian who um, is discussing the role of the knight at the Burgundian court, and then two art historians, including myself, looking at the manuscript tradition and the images in the manuscript, um, and two literary historians who are looking at the formation of the text, and then a costume historian, a very well-known 
uh, historian of arms and armor, whom I'm sure uh, many of your um, followers have heard of, named Toby Capwell, who is curator of arms and armors of the Wallace Collection. And then finally, uh, someone who studies library history. And she was looking at how um, how the manuscript was commissioned, who the patron might have been uh, within the family. So really looking at it from a number of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So uh, from the art uh, perspective, what uh, does does the manuscript fall in line with other manuscripts of the age, or does it show elements that are uh, different or unique? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting manuscript because, um, as you know from the title, it's basically a biography of this knight, Jacques de Lalonde, who was known as the best hand-to-hand combatant of the late Middle Ages. Um, he lived in the 15th century, and he was a knight at the um, court of the Duke of Burgundy. And um, he was incredibly famous in his time period uh, for his technique, um, both on horseback and hand-to-hand on the ground. Unfortunately, he died very early. He was actually one of the um, first documented people to be killed by artillery fire, so he's got that sort of interesting um, uh, mode to him. And he's always seen as this sort of romantic figure who was a transitional figure between the Middle Ages and Renaissance because he was a great hand-to-hand combatant, but then he was sort of ironically killed by um, artillery fire. And this manuscript was made right around 1530, so about 80 years after his death, and it was made for a member of his family, of the Lalonde family. And then the manuscript stayed in that family all the way until the Getty acquired it just a couple of years ago. So the manuscript is about a very sort of romantic historical figure, and then its story after that um, is a very interesting from our perspective because we have no other manuscript in the entire collection that um, we acquired from the family that the manuscript is actually about. That's very, very unusual. Considering that the manuscript was commissioned by his family, um, how often, you know, on one hand he's a famous figure, as you say, but considering he wa- it was commissioned by his own family, how often uh, were, you know, uh, knights or, or personages sort of uh, celebrated in manuscript by other, you know, why couldn't other families just, you know, commission manuscripts for their family members who had been knights and, you know, whatnot? Right. Right. It's interesting because the text of this manuscript is um, of a relatively new genre developed in the 15th century called chivalric biography, in which individual people were celebrated. And we think, in fact, that it may have been his own father who commissioned the text originally. And there are four illuminated copies of this um, particular text, the biography of Jacques de Lalonde. And we think that all four of them were commissioned by different family members, probably over time. So it was clear that, as you said, it really was a family celebration of um, their own sort of ancestor. It's almost a genealogical thing. And what's really interesting about our manuscript is that um, artistically it's the most highly developed and um, beautifully painted of all the copies. And what I find particularly interesting is that the frontispiece, which, as I mentioned, is incredibly large, is by this very famous artist named Simon Benning. And Simon Benning usually worked on devotional manuscripts, prayer books, uh, books of hours, liturgical manuscripts for the church. And this is one of his rare secular commissions. And so it seems clear to me, and this is something I write about in the um 
the book that we're discussing that I um, worked on with Getty is that the family clearly wanted the best artist of the day. And they went to Simon Bending. They said, we've got this great ancestor. You must paint our frontispiece. I can imagine that they pay quite a premium to get Simon Bending to work on their manuscripts. And then the rest of the miniatures were done by a much lesser known artist. So it's almost like I, I, I think of these really luxurious books made for wealthy members of the nobility at this time period, and the Lalong family was very wealthy. I almost think of them as the modern-day version of sort of a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. You know, you show it off to your friends, and this is the, it operated in the same way in their world. You would have your friends over. You're like, oh, I happen to have this genealogical manuscript about our famous ancestor. Wouldn't you like to take a look at it? Yes, you do recognize the hand of Simon Benning. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so they really wore these sort of showy objects that were very much a part of life at court and sort of creating that sense of luxury and wealth around a particular family. So I've heard, um, uh, speaking to another author, uh, we were discussing saintly figures that were painted in, in Greek churches, and it was mentioned that the artists usually painted the saints in military garb, weapons and armor mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the period mm-hmm. when the, the person painted, not necessarily historically accurate, of course. Do you see, is something like that seen in this manuscript and maybe other similar manuscripts? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And that is essentially um, the exact issue that Toby Capwell addresses in his essay. Because what he's looking at is the fact that even though Jacques de Lalonde died in the middle of the 15th century, as I mentioned, this manuscript was painted 80 years later. And the artist put in arms and armor of his own day. So 80 years later than the time of Jacques de Lalonde. And what's exciting is Toby Capwell puts in his essay, he actually looks at individual figures in the Getty manuscript and compares them to actual extant um, uh, examples of arms and armor, oftentimes from uh, the Wallace collection. So it's really exciting to see how this artist integrated his own time period so that people could understand and connect with Jacques de Lalonde. They really weren't interested in sort of historical accuracy and depicting the world of Jacques de Lalonde. They were interested in moving Jacques de Lalonde into their own time period and showing what he would have been sort of viewed as then. And so there's one story that Toby um, tells um, that I was discussing with him that's really interesting is that there's this one part where Jacques de Lalonde, um, he, you know, he, he he's so accomplished that he becomes a little bit boastful, in fact. And there's this one time when he sort of looks down on his opponent. He doesn't think that he's very worthy. And he actually says, I'll fight you. Um, with one leg not covered by armor, which in this time period was sort of the equivalent of saying, I'll fight you with one arm tied behind my back. And the miniature, the, the um, image that accompanies that text, actually shows him striding forward very, very clearly with armor only on one leg. So it's really interesting to see these details of the text brought to life in the actual images that accompany them. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about the colors that are used in these um in this, these paintings, or, or um, what's the the proper name for all the images in in the manuscript? We call 
them miniatures, um, and it's interesting because um, people often think that we call them miniatures because they're small and they're in books, but it actually, the, the term, the, the word miniature when referring to manuscript painting uh, comes from a Latin word minium, which is a kind of red. And way back in the beginning of manuscript illumination, the um, illuminations were done as sort of red pen drawings. So they were called, because they were done with this minium, they were called miniatures. So it has a sort of different meaning than the, the idea of small, which is what we usually think of. So they're called miniatures. Okay. So these miniatures, um, you know, whenever you see this medieval or um, these looks, they're very colorful, very bright, contrasting colors. Um, was that just because it looked good, or was there another meaning or reason for for how the colors were used? Well, it, um, it of course, develops through the time period of the Middle Ages. And um, in the earlier Middle Ages, you'll see a much more limited palette because they used more pure colors. But by the time you're in 1530, when this manuscript was painted, the colors are incredibly rich and varied because they were mixing the colors more. Now, um, it might interest your viewers to hear a little bit about how medieval colors were made. They're all made of tempera paint, which means they have an egg base. Um, and what they would do is they would um, separate the egg yolks from the egg whites, and they would whip up the egg whites and leave it overnight. And the egg actually separates into two parts, and the part that they use to make the paint is called glare. And they would mix glare with all types of things. Um, you would get colorants from things like parsley and bark and clay and ground-up um, rocks and all kinds of things, and then you would mix it with this glare to make paint. But in the later Middle Ages, they had a much wider range of types of things they were using. They would make vermilion from mercury. They would make all these different kinds of paints, and then they started mixing the colors. So the color palette that you'll see in the Getty Manuscript is amongst the most sophisticated of any that you'll see, and the, um, the illuminator, the artist, really used it to his advantage. One of my favorite illuminations in the whole book is this image that shows Jacques de Lalonde coming into one of his tournament shouts. And um, the, there's a lady who um, wants him to fight on her behalf, and she gives him um, this sort of beautiful pearl-embroidered um, scarf and that he's going to wear during the um, joust. But what she doesn't know is that he's also accepted um, a favor from another lady, and she has given him a gold arm ring that's studded with all kinds of precious gems. And so in the miniature, you see him wearing both of these things, and then you see the two ladies who have given each of these things, and then in the text, it talks about how they figured it out, and um, they were quite angry at him for fighting on ladies to have at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the artist really brings out that narrative through the use of color. Mm -hmm. So I have three sort of related questions about the text um, of the manuscript, and I'll give you all three of them. Um, so the first is, how much of the manuscript, and you might have meant addressed this a little bit already, but how much of the manuscript was based on just what the family told sort of the author um, how much, the second question is, how much of the manuscript can be um, verified by, by any other sources? And the third was, uh, when it was commissioned, I guess you said the father had the text written. Um, we think we think he may have been the one who, who commissioned the text. We're not really sure. And the third question is, was there, when this 
book was or uh, when this was produced, um, were there conflicts or, or wars or anything going on at that time that might have affected how the book was uh, created and presented? Yeah, interesting question. So, um, so the menu that the. As I mentioned, there are four illuminated copies of this particular manuscript, and all four of them have illuminations in the same places in the text. So it's clear that our artist was working on a familiar model um, that went back all the way to about 1480, so much earlier. Um, and so what's interesting is that our artist actually was using the same basic um, format and the same basic what we call iconography, in other words, the individual elements of the scene, but he actually incorporated a great deal more information that was taken from the text. So even though he's following the basic format that was established for this manuscript text, he was incorporating a lot more detail, um, which is really interesting because he was either reading the text himself or someone was helping direct it. Now, whether that person who was helping direct it may have been a member of the family or not, um, we don't really have, unfortunately, any information about that. As I mentioned, there was a scholar who addresses who in the family may have commissioned the manuscript, but it may have been any one of four people at that time period. So, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information um, about who would have done that. Now, um, the last question you had, which was about whether there was something going on at the time period, um, one of the interesting things is 1530 is quite late for an illuminated manuscript. It's just basically on the edge before the art of illumination pretty much dies by 1550. You don't really have illuminated manuscripts after that time period. And the art of chivalry itself, the idea of being a knight at the Burgundian court, back in the time in the day of Jacques de Lalande, it was a real, it was a social position, but it was also very much an actual, um, dependency of the knight on the Dukes of Burgundy. And that's how Jacques de Lalonde was actually killed. He was fighting in the Ghent Wars on behalf of the Duke of Burgundy. He was besieging a castle um, with the army of the Duke when he was killed. Um, by 1530, being a knight at the Duke of Burgundy was much more becoming a social position rather than someone who would actually go out and fight on behalf of the Duke. And so there is this almost sense of longing for the old days or nostalgia um, about the person who would have been commissioning this manuscript, sort of looking back to the heyday of the night when they were you know, rushing out and helping the Duke of Burgundy. So there probably is a little bit of that happening. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we address, so you said there were seven different essays, um, eight, including mine. Did, have we addressed, have I asked questions about all of them? I forget the, uh, the full list. There. No, I just sort of, uh, briefly went over, um, what, um, each of them was doing, but I think it's one of those cases where the, the sum adds up to more than the individual parts, hopefully. Um, it's an unusual publication in that it's not just me shouting out about the art. I really want to bring out different perspectives about the different kinds of things. And so hopefully, um, if, uh, people get the book, maybe they're, you know, maybe some of your listeners are more interested in military history and so they'll go to Toby Capwell's um, essay first, but then there might be our historians who are interested in Simon Benning, they'll go to um, to my essay first. So it depends a little bit on what interest you're bringing, and the, ho the hope of the book is that no matter what your interest, you'll find something 
um, in this book that um, piques your imagination. Okay. Um, now, apart from the subject matter of the book, uh, what what other resources uh, did he use for this research? I think you touched on a few, but if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So um, there's a couple of things. One of the things that I didn't mention about the book is that um, before all the essays begin, there's actually a section of the book that reproduces each of the miniatures in the manuscript and contains English text that has been translated directly from the French uh, by scholars Rinka Stuholjak. And um, that is a really wonderful way to get familiar with the language, with the kind of um, the way that they introduced um, the biography, the way that they talked about Jacques de Lalonde, and you can kind of get a snapshot of um, the, the particular narrative that relates to all the individual miniatures. There's also an entire plot summary that kind of um, gives out his whole biography. And um, one of the things that you asked a little bit earlier that I think I didn't address in full is um, the sources of information for this manuscript um, in terms of how they connect with other things. Um, so we know that Jacques de Lalonde was a real person. We know from other historical sources that he died at the, the Battle of the Siege of the Castle that I mentioned, um, that he was a knight at the court of the Duke of Burgundy. We know from the accounts of the Duke of Burgundy that he was sent around on various diplomatic min, uh, missions. So a lot of his life we have verified. But for instance, the person who, writing his, who was writing his biography didn't have a lot of information about his childhood and frankly didn't care that much. And so most of the childhood episodes um, follow a rote formula that you would find in romances of the time period, um, just about how, you know, from a very young age, he was incredibly conscientious and he had all these virtues. Um, but that is basically all made up. So one of the essays in the book actually talks about this sort of um, combination of um, different types of historical information plus things that are made up in the text, which I think um, would be very interesting um, for audiences. Um, so like I said, there's, there's a variety um, in the manuscript. But in terms of my own research process, uh, just to give one example, when the manuscript came to us, as I said, it hadn't been published since 1914. And of course, I knew it was Simon Benning right away. Um, but in order to um, do a full study, I had to go out and, and basically write a research paper um, proving that this frontispiece was by Simon Benning. And so I was comparing all of the various elements, and one of my favorite stories about it is in this frontispiece, it's the frontispiece of the author at work writing the biography of Jacques de Lalonde. It actually doesn't depict Jacques de Lalonde, but it was very common to have um, an author portrait at the beginning of these types of manuscripts to sort of emphasize that it was a real historical account. Um, and at the artist's feet, there's a little dog asleep. And I started comparing it to the works of Simon Benning. And in the 1530s, if you look at his work, there's a little dog that appears as a puppy in some of the earlier works in the 1530s. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the 1530s, the dog is a grown-up dog. <laughs> and so I published a blog post on the Getty website about how I think that this might have actually been Simon Benning's dog. Mm -hmm. Because it appears in so many of his different images and gives a clue that, of course, it was really by this artist. So you never really know which way your research is going to take you and down these little alleyways that become fascinating in and of themselves. So how many uh, different uh, works by Simon Benning did you have access to and, and sort of how many of them have a military uh, flavor to them? So um, we are fortunate that we have a um, uh, 
one of his greatest manuscripts already in the Getty collection. It's called The Prayer Book of Albrecht of Brandenburg, who was a great cardinal and a great collector, art collector of the Middle Ages. Um, and then I was able to, um, of course, have access to um, photography, and I had myself um, studied Simon Benning in the past, so I'd seen many of his manuscripts in person. His oeuvre is enormous. Um, he was active uh, for over 40 years, which is a very long active career for an artist. In fact, there's a very charming portrait, a self-portrait of him at the age of 61, and he's got little spectacles perched on his nose and gray hair, so he, he gave a, a valid self-portrait mm-hmm. in his um, older years. Um, so I was able to compare this manuscript to quite a number of other manuscripts. Now, as I mentioned, most of his other manuscripts are devotional in nature, okay. um, but you find actually more sort of um, arms and armor and jousting and whatnot than you'd think in some of his other works, um, both because, for instance, there's a very famous um, scene in the prayer book of Albrecht of Brandenburg of the arrest of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're all wearing armor, the soldiers, to come arrest him. So you find little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. But also devotional books often open with a calendar, which shows all 12 months of the year, and each of the months of the year is given what we call a labor of the month. It's an activity or a labor associated with that particular month. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes in the summer, um, one of the things that you'll see depicted is a joust. And so you will see scenes that are very, very closely related to what you see in the Getty manuscript. So there are bits and pieces here. You have to kind of know where to look. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to test an assumption. Um, Simon Benning... I assume would have actually seen examples, you know, with his own eyes of stuff he was he was painting. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. Did he? Do you know if he did a lot of traveling, or was he restricted to one area to see, you know, the jousts and, and whatnot? Yeah, right. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right that you know um, life in this time period involved, you know, seeing these things because they were part of um, sort of festivals. Um, not necessarily everyday activities, but certainly he, something he would have witnessed himself. Um, we don't know much about his um, sort of travels beyond um, uh, what is present-day Netherlands and Belgium. That was where he was based, um, probably mostly in the cities of Ghent and Bruges. Um, we don't have any evidence that he traveled to places like Italy, um, you know, Belgium and the Netherlands are, are pretty close to France, so he may have gone there, but we don't actually have any um, evidence of that. Um, so what he depicts in his miniatures is very much the kind of court pageantry that you would have seen at the um, court of the Duke of Burgundy in this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't mention this. In, did he have any images, of naval images, um, ships, warships, or anything like that? Would that have hmm. appeared? I'm trying to think. He... Um, he is associated with one manuscript that actually shows um, the um, all. Uh, he painted individual portraits of all of the um, knights um, of the Golden Fleece, and that was sort of the the big chivalric order of the time period. Um, so he did that, but they're more or less standing portraits with coats of arms of all the individuals. Um, I'm trying to think. You know, he did do a couple. So he did a manuscript, a very very famous manuscript. Um, called the genealogy of the kings of Spain and Portugal, mm-hmm. 
which was a genealogical manuscript done actually just about the same time as the Getty manuscript. And there are some marginal images in that particular manuscript, which is held by the British Library, um, that show uh, some uh, boats at sea, and I think there might be a couple of naval battles in there. And um, one of the things he was really known for was his naturalistic depictions of um, phenomenon like water and sunlight and all those kinds of things. So it is really exciting to, to study his um, output from that perspective. It's funny when you mention uh, portraits of members of, I think you called it, it's the Golden Fleece. Yeah, the Order of the Golden Fleece. It's, you know, it popped into my mind, you know, current day images of soldiers standing around, you know, doing portraits of them all gathered together. For some reason that popped in my head when I imagined these these members of the yeah. Golden Fleece. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's that sense of camaraderie, whether it's today or back then. I mean, and back then, there wasn't like a draft. <laughs> you had to be nominated and accepted, and it was a big deal mm -hmm. uh, to be into this, but... It was, it was a coterie of brothers, essentially, and you wanted to memorialize the fact that you were part of that coterie, and that's exactly why, you know, people take photographs of their, you know, squad or their battalion or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. Um, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Um, I have to say, working with all the other scholars on a single project, we we had a sort of email thing going where someone would say, oh, I was reading about my thing, but I found this thing that I think is really interesting that you might incorporate into your essay. And it, that sort of active scholarly um, uh, dialogue that was happening on an, almost a daily basis for months at a time was really exciting to me. Some of the people who participated in the publication were people I had known for a very long time who were personal friends. Some of them I, you know, I had admired their work and, and this was a perfect occasion to ask them uh, to um, participate. And so I met them, you know, physically during the course of this. And those get-togethers when we were sitting around talking about the project and the manuscripts were just incredibly intellectually stimulating and also very personally rewarding because now I count them all as friends. Mm -hmm. Have you, uh, I forgot to ask this before, have you been able to visit, or would you have had any reason to visit any of the sites um, that, that are depicted in the manuscript? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've traveled um, extensively in Belgium, so I've seen uh, some of the cities that he would have been familiar with, and in places like Yen and Bruges, there's quite a bit of the medieval material and architecture still existing. Um, but one of the things that I had the chance to do in the course of this was make contact with the Lalong family um, for some of their um, some information about their archival records and to gain permission to um, uh, you know reproduce some of the other manuscripts in their collection. And um, they were quite um, they were very gracious in responding to these and giving permission. Uh, one of the manuscripts hadn't been photographed before, so we arranged for a photographer uh, to go there and photograph the manuscript. And during the course of all this correspondence, they actually asked me to come visit the castle at some point. So I would love to go visit the Lord of Lalonde, the present-day one, and see the Lalonde family castle. Now, the castle that's there doesn't date back to the time of Jacques de Lalonde, but it is the exact same family. It's interesting that uh, that there's not a European museum, um, you know, taking charge on on studying this. Um, that it's the Getty. Um, 
You mean in terms of this particular manuscript, or you yes. mean in terms of the Middle Ages in general? No, this manuscript. Um, well, this manuscript, as I mentioned, was in private hands um, all of this time, and the last publication that had been done on it was 1914, so I don't think a lot of people knew that this manuscript existed, frankly. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that when we acquire a masterpiece of this stature, I really try to get a publication out about it uh, within a couple of years, because I think it's really important to share these objects um, with um, our, um, you know, visitors and also constituents around the world. So there was another book um, that we um, uh, acquired um, a few years ago uh, called The Romance of Julien de Plasigny, which is another Flemish manuscript of an earlier date about another knight named um, Julien de Plasigny. And he actually, um, he had a fabulous history. He went off to the East um, and became you know, the head of the Sultan's armies kind of by mistake, and then it turned out that he thought his wife was dead, and she wasn't, so he married a Saracen princess, and he became a bigamist, and, you know, it's a, a big, you know, high adventure kind of thing. And I um, I published a book on that manuscript as well within a couple of years uh, of its acquisition by the Getty, and that manuscript as well had been in a private collection in England. So especially when these objects come from private collections and they haven't been well published, I really feel it's part of my responsibility as head of the department um, to get information out there as quickly as possible about them. Okay. What did you find that was most surprising in your research? I think for me the thing that was um, most surprising was to um, find out so much information about the secondary artist that I mentioned, not Simon Benning, but the other artist who um, I took the liberty of um, giving the name the master of Begetti Lalande. <laughs> um, so he um, he's an anonymous artist. We don't have his name. But in the course of my research, I was actually able to gather quite a number of other objects that um, uh, have a very similar style that I think might also be by his hand. And um, one of the things that I proposed in the book was that he was actually a panel painter in addition to a manuscript illuminator, um, which wasn't totally uncommon in this time period. Simon Benning himself was also a panel painter in addition to being a manuscript illuminator. But the way that he used um, space and the way that he had a very painterly quality, a very loose quality in his painting in the manuscript, um, and some of the motifs he were using, he was using that I think were um, taken from uh, panel painting happening at the time period um, actually uh, spurred me to think of that and that hadn't been something that I had considered at the time we acquired it so that was quite interesting from an art historical perspective What was the most um, difficult and, and I understand you were the editor of all these but was there a, a, a particularly difficult issue uh, that maybe you or, or some of the other writers grappled with coming to a conclusion on uh, and maybe haven't haven't come to a conclusion on? Well, um, it's interesting. When we acquired the manuscript, um, it had been dated as circa 1530 to 1540. And one of the interesting things is that as we started to do our research in our various aspects like the, um, the depiction of arms and armor, the depiction of costume, uh, the career of Simon Benning, we all came more or less to the conclusion that the manuscript actually couldn't have been quite that late and was probably much closer to circa 1530 itself. And so that was a really interesting process to find. I had been thinking that, and then when I shared my conclusions with my other authors, 
um, they were saying things like, oh, I'm so relieved you said that because this kind of sleeve doesn't appear really until 1535, and so I think this has to be before that, or this type of visor in armor um, came in, um, you know, relatively early, and it's still being re- represented here. So it was really nice to have um, them back up my own thoughts about redating the manuscript. And so right now we're proposing that the manuscript is dated around 1530. But part of part of the important thing to me about getting this research out there and making this manuscript known is that all of a sudden we'll have all kinds of other scholars um, being able to chime in on the conversation and react to what we've said. So uh, who knows where it will go in the future. Mm-hmm. And forgive my ignorance on this point, but um, I guess there is no way... Yeah, this this is a silly question. To date it um, according to by the material, you know, the actual paint or anything, that you wouldn't be able to get a precise date. Uh, no, um, unfortunately, that kind of dating doesn't work with that kind of um, precision. One avenue of research that might happen in the future, but I think it's pretty far in the future, mm-hmm. is that um, some um, scientists and conservation people um, have. Um, started to think about um, actually doing uh, DNA research on the parchment itself. And if they could, I mean, I think this would be very, very far in the future. I think you're seeing now what kind of 23andMe can do for humans. But eventually, theoretically, if we had enough information about, um, you know, sort of sheep herds, in medieval um, uh, Burgundy, we might be able to kind of line them up more in a um, relative chronology, not a specific date, but you might actually be able to do something with that. But I think it's pretty far in the future, and right now as well, we don't allow physical sampling of our manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we don't want someone, like, punching a hole in it to get the actual material you would need to do to do DNA analysis. Mm-hmm. But you just don't know what the future holds. Can you do any kind of, um, is it worth, or maybe you've done, you know, x-rays of the book or, you know, anything like that? Yeah, we have, we're very fortunate at the Getty in that we have very, very sophisticated uh, conservation and and scientists um, who work specifically with manuscripts. And so um, we can do things like infrared reflectography, x-radiography. Um, we haven't felt the need to do that on this um, particular manuscript. I would like to at some point in the future so that maybe we could see the underdrawing by Simon Benning and see whether he came up with any changes uh, during the course of actually painting the miniature. Um, but, for instance, there's another Burgundian manuscript in the collection that is a biography of Alexander the Great. And the manuscript had... Um, on its first page, it had a dedication, uh, probably to the original patron. And at some point later, somebody else um, owned the manuscript and didn't want that um, that sort of dedication, didn't want somebody else's name probably in his manuscript. And so he painted over it with gold. And what we've been trying to do is using some of these very sophisticated techniques to see if we can bring up the letters that were originally underneath that gold to see if we can figure out who originally owned the manuscript. And I do have high hopes that sometime in the, in the near future we'll be able to figure out that mystery. So there's always new things that we can be finding out through these kinds of techniques. Mm-hmm. Was there anything uh, you discovered in working on this, this book that uh, emotionally moved you, either positively or negatively? Um, I think, you know, the story I told about, about um, 
thinking that this might be actually Simon Benning's dog was a, a particularly sort of um, personal moment for me because I'm a huge dog lover. I'm working on a big exhibition right now about animals in the Middle Ages. Um, and so for me to make that kind of personal connection possibly with an artist that far back in the past to think, oh, this is an artist who loved his dog as much as I did and wanted to portray him or her in um, his or her, um, in, in his artworks. I just thought that that was really um, a sort of fascinating tidbit that helped me make a more personal connection uh, with someone who I've studied very academically from the past. And that was really fun. Mm-hmm. So what do you hope the book will ultimately do? Well, um, you know, I have sort of two main hopes for the book. One is that it will enable people to enjoy this manuscript as much as I do, because I think it's it's an incredibly accessible, fascinating, fun, fast-paced adventure tale with beautiful illuminations that people, you know, can now enjoy really for the first time uh, by looking through this book. And then the secondary hope I have for it is that it will really spur research, further research into this manuscript and also to late Burgundian manuscripts in general about how much you can learn from looking at a manuscript from the kind of variety of perspectives that we do in this publication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just reminded me that the book is more than just the essays and some of the images. It's it's the full the full manuscript along with the essays. Is that correct? It doesn't. It, the manuscript itself is um, something like eight hundred pages long, so we couldn't unfortunately. Um, reproduce the entire manuscript. Mm. We just um, reproduced all of the individual miniatures. Oh, okay, okay. Because you may, I mean, you just described it as a very exciting uh, story, so... And that's why we provided the entire plot as a separate section so that you can read through the entire plot. Mm. And then you definitely get a sample of um, the kind of language and the kind of ways they had of storytelling through these um, uh, translations of the portions of text that directly relate to the miniatures. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the the 1914 publication, is is there anywhere where the full story can be found, or is it possible it might be published in the future? Or, you, know? um, you mean a translation of the entire thing, or yes. Yes. an actual photographic reproduction? Uh, just a translation. Um, so there is a um, a translation into modern French um, that exists in a scholarly publication of a number of years ago is by um, a woman named Colette Bone. And um, uh, so that's where you can actually find um, the entire book, but it's in modern French, not in English. So um, I don't think it's probably going to be translated into English um, anytime soon, that would have to be, um, you know, a, a huge um, project. But in any case, in case your visitors, uh, in case your listeners uh, know French and want to read it, it's a publication from 1995 by Colette Bon, and it's called Splendeur de la Cour de Bourgogne, et Chronique. And it's a gathering of different kinds of texts from the Court of Burgundy, and this is one of them. Hmm. Okay. Can you speak to any difficulties that you had in finishing the book? Um, and I guess getting it published was easy because it was be- it's being published by <laughs> Getty. Yeah, that's that's always that's always nice to have my own <laughs> my own publishing arm. Um, I think the only reason that I had um, I ran into a little bit of trouble is that um, when I was finishing up this book, I was also trying to write 
my next book. <laughs> and um, so this book, the, 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 the Nights of the Ages, is coming out at the end of this month. Um, and then my next book will come out in uh, May. So it will only be, you know, a number of months later. And um, that was a little bit, um, uh, that was tough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just from the work perspective. Now, the next book, I think you, you might have mentioned it before, but what, this next book that's coming out, what is it on again? So the next book that I'm doing is this exhibition catalog for um, the um, an exhibition that's opening in May at the Getty. It's a big international loan exhibition, 115 objects from 45 lenders, and it's accompanied by a catalog. Um, and it's called um, the Book of Beasts, and it's about um, these kind of natural history encyclopedias of the Middle Ages that contained all the animals of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, earlier, before we began recording, I think you mentioned a book on um, the Trojan War, how it was uh, interpreted in yeah. the 13th century, I think you said? Yeah, 13th and early 14th century, yes. That was my dissertation topic, oh, right. and I've published it as a number of articles. I haven't published a big book on it, mm-hmm. but I'd like to think of doing that maybe at some point in the future, looking at the Trojan War. The reason I was interested in it is because um, the, the, the sort of... So it, at that point in the Middle Ages, um, they didn't have any of the classical texts that we're familiar with of the Trojan War. What they had was a... Um, a sort of made-up history of the Trojan War, um, supposedly told by eyewitnesses, um, and then it was sort of romanticized and translated into French. And the hero of that text is Hector of Troy, who was son of King Priam of Troy. Mm-hmm. And the French kings um, saw themselves as the direct de- descendants of Hector. Um, according to that, um, to their thinking, Hector had a son son named Frankian, who actually escaped from Troy and came and founded France. And the reason that, that was important to them was because other nations in Europe, like Italy and England and Germany, had all um, traced their heritage back to Aeneas, who was actually a traitor and betrayed the Trojan people, and that's why he survived. And so the French were saying, oh, we're so much better than all the other European countries because we're founded from Hector, who was a loyal knight in Troy until the end. And so what I was looking at was illustrated versions of that sort of Trojan legend and how they um, sort of emphasize this idea of Hector of Troy. It's interesting that uh, why, why did all these European countries trace themselves back to the, the side that lost the Trojan War, you know, this sort of alien kingdom, so to speak? <laughs> well, as you, as you might remember, the Aeneid was you know, is the the sort of text par excellence of the um, Trojan War because it traces the story of Aeneas, who did betray the Trojan people um, and the big Trojan horse and all of that, but then he was on the winning side <laughs> because he went over to the other side and enabled them to, um, to uh, you know, so if, you know, I think the other European countries were maybe thinking of it from the tradition of Aeneas, and then this new guy came along, Hector, and, and the French sort of latched onto him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where where can people find uh, your work then, your other writings or thoughts? Do you have social media or anything like that? Um, I, I'm not particularly active on social media, I have to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go to the Getty website um, and you go to the Getty bookstore, um, most of my 
um, sort of popular publications are available through um, the Getty Bookstore. And um, my more academic writings, um, I, if your viewer or if your listeners are interested, they're probably medieval historians themselves and, and can find me very easily um, through the kinds of databases and whatnot that we use for research. Mm-hmm. But my main sort of publications that I think most of your listeners would be interested in are available on the Getty website or on Amazon. What's the Getty website's address? It's um, www.getty.edu. Okay. G-E-T-T-Y. Exactly. Okay. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, but I sure appreciate um, your taking the time to interview me. And the only other thing that I would um, add in is that we do have another manuscript in the collection, Um which is, you know, almost always what I get interviewed for uh, when I'm talking about military history, which, of course, is our Fior di Battaglia manuscript. And I know that your listeners probably already know about that manuscript, um, but if they don't, they can go to the Getty website and we have um, some wonderful videos where people are actually reenacting um, the Fior uh, di Battaglia uh, scenes from that manuscript. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a number of Getty publications about that one as well, and I think your listeners would enjoy that manuscript too. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Well, thank you for speaking with me. This podcast has been presented by War Scholar. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for more great interviews and military history information. Your visits help support this podcast. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez War Scholar. That's Chris without an H, C-R-I-S. On Facebook under War Scholar. On YouTube under War Scholar 1945. And on Twitter under War Scholar. Thank you, and I hope you return to this podcast for more great military history.